It's April 1963, and Hasbro creative director Don Levine is sitting in a small office in Midtown Manhattan, and he's starting to wonder why the hell he's here. Levine's been invited to the office by Sam Weston. Weston's a licensing agent, a fixer, who helps movie studios and supermodels get merchandising deals. But so far, Weston's just droning on about how much gear the military has. That's not news to Levine. He fought in Korea. Sam, Sam, why are you telling me this? Uh, Sorry, got off track. Uh, So, I'm representing a military TV show, and if you're pitching me a military toy, don't. The market's saturated. It's all been done. Plastic soldiers, cap guns, everything. Wait, wait, hear me out. Barbie's the biggest money spinner ever, right? Why? Because girls don't just get a Barbie. They get all the clothes and accessories, too. Now, imagine this. A rugged soldier doll for boys with all the gear sold separately. No one's done that before. Hmm. That's, uh, that's a pretty, pretty good idea. But uh, a doll for boys? Uh, I don't know. Let me think it over. Levine spends the weekend wrestling with the idea. And the more he thinks about it, well, the better it sounds. But a doll... That's the problem. It's 1963, and only girls play with dolls. There's another problem, too. Hasbro boss Merrill Hassenfeld has one cast-iron rule about new toys. No dolls. If Levine's going to develop this soldier doll, it'll have to be a covert op. The following Monday, Levine gathers his most trusted toy designers in his office at Hasbro's headquarters in Central Falls, Rhode Island. As the designers enter the office, they notice a small artist's mannequin standing on Levine's desk. It's about the size of a Barbie. With the door shut, Levine reveals what's going on. This project is top secret. No one must know, especially Merrill Hassenfeld. We're making a doll, a Barbie for boys. It's a soldier doll with uniforms, weapons, and other military gear, all right? He's going to have articulated limbs, too, like this mannequin, so he can strike different poses. The group exchanges stunned glances. One of the team's artists speaks first. I like the idea, but you cannot call it a doll. Call it a soldier or maybe a G.I. And a name, Joe or something, at least for now. Smiles break out on the team's faces. They know this is a daring project, but the risk and secrecy only makes it all the more thrilling. But to succeed in their covert mission, they've got to create a truly awesome prototype before Hasenfeld finds out what they're doing. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. 
It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, Hasbro and Mattel shook up 1950s Toyland with their pioneering TV advertising. But as the 1960s get underway, the fortunes of the two rivals couldn't be more different. Thanks to Barbie, Mattel's flying high. In fewer than 15 years, it's gone from a tiny startup in an L.A. garage to the biggest toy maker in the world. But life is tougher for its East Coast rival. Hasbro hasn't scored big since the debut of Mr. Potato Head in the early 50s. And the company still earns way more from making pencils than toys. Now, Hasbro creative director Don Levine thinks his soldier doll could be the game changer the company needs. But he's got an uphill battle ahead, persuading Hasbro CEO Merrill Hassenfeld to bet everything on G.I. Joe. This is episode two. Boy Toy. It's May 1963, and on the second floor of a squat red brick factory in Central Falls, Rhode Island, Hasbro's designers are busy with their secret mission to create G.I. Joe. One designer uses a sewing machine to stitch a miniature naval uniform. Another is devising blueprints for G.I. Joe's wrist joints. And near the stairwell leading to the design floor, an artist is sketching packaging designs. Suddenly, the artist freezes. Everyone, shh! The room goes silent and listens. They know that sound. It's the telltale stomp of Merrill Hassenfeld's rotund frame heading up the stairwell to their floor. The team leaps into action. They shove prototype dolls into desk drawers, stuff half-stitched fabrics into their pockets, and stash artwork behind filing cabinets. They barely return to their seats when Hassenfeld walks in. The Hasbro boss pauses at the entrance and scans the room through his thick, black-rimmed glasses. It's like he's looking for something. Then, without a word... Hassenfeld marches into Levine's office and shuts the door behind him. Inside the office, Levine plays it cool. Hey, Merrill, how was your trip? Good, good. What's the latest on the toys in development? Levine rattles through the projects Hassenfeld already knows about. A cosmetics line for little girls, a new plastic body for Mr. Potato Head. Hassenfeld lets Levine finish, but looks disinterested. Uh-huh. Anything else? It's clear Hassenfeld hasn't come to hear about those projects. Levine figures word must have gotten out about the team's top secret project. He decides to come clean. Uh, there's something new, too. Hassenfeld doesn't look surprised. Levine buzzes his secretary. 
Can you bring us the movable soldier prototype? A few seconds later, the secretary delivers a cigar box to the office. After she leaves, Levine opens the box. Inside, there's a Ken doll. He's dressed in an olive green army uniform, and his plastic hair has been filed down to a military buzz cut. Hassenfeld raises his bushy eyebrows and squints at military Ken. Before Hassenfeld can say anything, Levine starts pitching. Hard. This is a boy's toy that uses the same business model as Mattel uses for Barbie. We're not just designing a soldier here. We're designing sold separately military equipment for him to use, too. Canteens, tents, rifles, flamethrowers, sleeping bags, scuba gear, the whole lot. He'll be posable, too, like an artist mannequin. It's a new type of toy, a fully posable man of action, an action figure. Hassenfeld crosses his arms. Where will this be manufactured? I'm thinking somewhere in the Orient, you know, to keep costs down. Hassenfeld looks uneasy. Like most American toy makers in the early 60s, Hasbro's never made anything outside the United States. I, I don't know about this, Don. It's quite a leap. I need to give it some thought. After Hassenfeld leaves, Levine calls the G.I. Joe team into his office. Okay, he hasn't said no, not yet at least. So we need to work fast. The closer we are to a finished product, the harder it'll be for him to say no. Now this remains top secret. I don't want Mattel getting word of what we're doing. It's summer, 1963. And in Chelsea, Massachusetts, a Dodge Lancer has just pulled up outside a plane warehouse. The driver is Hasbro product developer Jerry Einhorn. Einhorn gets out of his car and looks around. There are no signs, but he's sure this is the place. This is not your average toy developer mission. He's heard this warehouse sells surplus army gear to South American revolutionaries. And Einhorn needs weapons, real-life weapons that he can use as models for G.I. Joe's pocket-sized loadout. He heads into the warehouse. As his eyes adjust to the dimly lit interior, he sees stacks of second-hand uniforms, aging rifles on racks, and large wood crates full of surplus mortar shells. Then, a man in a black suit emerges from the shadows. Can I help you? Einhorn's got his cover story ready. I own a museum out in South County, Rhode Island. We're doing a World War II display, and I'm after gear for the exhibit. All right. Pick out what you need. Einhorn spends an hour rummaging around the warehouse. He loads the trunk of his car with uniforms, hand grenades, rifles, bazooka shells, and more. Enough equipment to make his car sag under the weight. Car loaded, Einhorn starts driving back to Rhode Island. But just minutes later, he takes the wrong exit from the highway and winds up in downtown Boston. Hopelessly lost, Einhorn drives through the streets desperately looking for a way back. And that's when he makes the illegal left turn in front of a cop standing on the corner. The policeman motions for Einhorn to pull over. As the cop approaches, a bead of sweat runs down Einhorn's back. Hi, officer. What did I do wrong? Did you not see the no left turn sign? 
Oh, 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 I'm sorry. You see, I'm I'm lost. I'm trying to get back to back to Rhode Island. I was on the expressway. Yeah, right. Your license and registration, please. After taking the documents, the cop wanders to the back of Einhorn's car. As he watches the officer through the side mirror, he recalls what Levine said before he made this trip. No one can know anything about G.I. Joe. If the cops pick you up, we don't know you. And just as he's remembering Levine's words, the cop puts his right foot onto the car bumper, causing the car's weight to shift. Einhorn's heart skips a beat. Come and open the trunk, sir. Gingerly, Einhorn exits the car and heads to the back. He inserts the key and opens the trunk to reveal his haul of weapons and gear. A machete stained with dry blood glints in the sun. Ah, what's all this? It's for the museum. I I work at a museum in Rhode Island. We're creating a World War II exhibit. I got this stuff from an army surplus store. Einhorn prays the cop won't check his story. World War II, huh? You know, I fought in North Africa and Italy. After spending the next ten minutes chatting about World War II, the cop breaks into a smile. Tell you what, I'll let you off. Just drive more carefully from here on out, okay? Einhorn's mission is a success. But the future of G.I. Joe still hangs in the balance. By late August, G.I. Joe is almost ready to go into production, but there's still no decision from Hassenfeld. Every time Levine raises the question, Hassenfeld just makes excuses. Now, time is running out. If Hassenfeld doesn't give the go-ahead soon, it'll be too late to put G.I. Joe into production for 1964. And without G.I. Joe, Hasbro risks facing another year without a hit toy. Knowing time's almost up, Hassenfeld retreats to his office. He sits alone, puffing a cigar, weighing the pros and cons. Levine's hard sell has worked. Hassenfeld agrees there is something special about this G.I. Joe, but he knows it could easily be a flop. No one's made a doll for boys before, and there's no telling how people will react. Then... There's the cost. G.I. Joe will cost more than $2 million to manufacture, let alone promote. Hasbro's a small company. If this toy bombs, it'll take the entire business down. But if it's a hit, well, it could be the making of Hasbro. Gripped with indecision, Hassenfeld decides he needs to call some pals for advice. A week later... The three most powerful men in the toy business are sitting in Hasbro's conference room. They're the men who make or break toys, the buyers from Woolworths, Sears, and retail supply giant Associated Merchandising. Hassenfeld's flown them to Rhode Island to hear Levine pitch G.I. Joe. Their reactions will seal this soldier's fate. As Levine prepares to enter the room, Hassenfeld gives him a pep talk. Whatever happens... I need you to be a big boy. Accept what they say. Levine spends an hour explaining the company's Barbie for Boys soldier doll concept. And the buyers? They like it. After the meeting, Levine looks his boss right in the eyes. You heard them. Now it's your turn to be a big boy and forget your no dolls rule. Come on, let's make G.I. Joe. Okay, get the factories ready. 
By the end of 1963, factories in Hong Kong are pumping out thousands of G.I. Joes that will soon be loaded onto ships bound for America. Hassenfeld's gambling Hasbro's future on this toy, and now it's too late to turn back. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's March 1964, and Toy Fair is underway in New York City. And in a hotel suite on Park Avenue, Hasbro's playing host to America's top toy buyers. The toy maker has transformed the plush suite into a G.I. Joe showroom. Boxes of G.I. Joes sit on a large oak table. Next to the table, there's a huge wall rack displaying G.I. Joe's gear. Cloth ammo belts, tents, life jackets, and machine guns. A huge plexiglass-covered diorama dominates the center of the room. Inside the diorama, G.I. Joe soldiers and Marines are storming a sandy beach as G.I. Joe Navy and airmen watch from a ship anchored offshore, a scene that invokes the Allies' epic Normandy invasion. The dolls are posed mid-action to highlight the toy's flexible joints. Not that anyone is allowed to say the word doll. Hasbro's team is under strict orders Never say doll. G.I. Joe isn't a doll. He's an action figure. There are no dolls in this room. As the Woolworths buyer surveys the diorama, Hassenfeld moves in next to him. Come on, put me out of my misery. What do you think? The buyer smiles. I hope you're producing a lot of these because I reckon you've got a winner here. That summer, G.I. Joe parachutes into stores, backed by a $2.5 million TV ad list. G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe, fighting man from head to toe, on the land, on the sea, in the air. G.I. Joe, attack! Boom, boom! G.I. Joe, take sail! Bam, bam! G.I. Joe doesn't stay on the shelves for long. Within days, he's out of stock in toy stores across America. And by Christmas... G.I. Joe's an all-conquering hero that's propelling Hasbro into the upper echelons of the toy business. The next year, he sells even better. Even the growing backlash against the Vietnam War can't stop him. 
When anti-war sentiment eventually causes G.I. Joe's sales to slide, Hasbro successfully recasts him as a bearded adventurer with a dog tag that resembles a peace symbol. But Hasbro's not going to have full reign over the boys' market for long. And that's because Mattel is about to deliver a smash hit boys' toy of its own. It's 1967, and Mattel co-founder Elliot Handler is babysitting his grandson. As the grandchild of Mattel's founders, two-year-old Todd isn't short on toys. But to Elliot's annoyance, Todd doesn't want to play with the Mattel toys today. He only wants to play with his die-cast matchbox cards. These British-made miniature replicas of everyday vehicles dominate the toy car category. It's a category worth more than $20 million a year, but Mattel doesn't own even a dime of it. And now, little Todd seems to be rubbing it in. Over and over, Todd pushes a matchbox ambulance around the room, chanting, Papa car, Papa car, Papa car. The next morning, Elliot arrives at Mattel's headquarters in Los Angeles with a bag full of matchbox cars. He sits in his office, pushing the cars playfully around his desk. He's looking for an angle. Mattel's philosophy is that it should only enter a new toy category if it can offer something innovative. Aping the competition just isn't enough. Frustrated, Elliot pushes a matchbox Bentley away from him. Almost immediately, the car stops moving. The wheels of the matchbox car don't spin much, he realizes. A grin breaks across Elliot's face. <laughs> He's just found his angle. He grabs the toy car and rushes to the office of Mattel Engineering Chief Jack Ryan. Elliot plonks the car onto Ryan's desk. Can you take this car and make it zip across the room with just a push? That afternoon, Ryan comes to Elliot's office with the souped-up Bentley. Elliot, clear your desk. Elliot shoves yellow legal pads, pens, and staplers out of the way. Path cleared, Ryan crouches at one end of the desk and places the toy car on the desk. Ready? Elliot nods and Ryan taps the rear of the car. The miniature Bentley shoots forward, rolling noisily over the wooden desk before plunging dramatically over the edge and crashing onto the floor. <laughs> wow, what did you do? I switched the axle for a thin wire, less resistance that way. Simple, really. Over the next few months, Mattel develops the idea further. It creates plastic racetracks that let its speedy cars do loop-the-loops and other stunts. Mattel also embraces California's hot-rodding craze to further distinguish its pocket-sized cars from those made by Matchbox. Instead of boring, scaled-down versions of everyday vehicles, Mattel's toy cars boast outlandish spoilers, flashy alloys, and beefy engines that poke out of the hood. Finally, Mattel gives its toy cars a name, Hot Wheels. And in May 1968, Hot Wheels zoom into toy stores. They're new. They're authentic. They're the fastest miniature metal cars you've ever seen. Hot Wheels quickly leaves Matchbox choking on its dust. By the end of 68, Mattel sold $25 million worth of Hot Wheels toys. Matchbox's U.S. sales evaporate almost overnight. The success of Hot Wheels confirms Mattel's status as the world's top toy maker and one of the hottest stocks of the 1960s. Wall Street loves Mattel. It's delivering double-digit growth every quarter. 
And with the company's stock price soaring, Ruth and Elliot Handler are thinking big. They want Mattel to go beyond toys and become the new Disney. They go on a buying spree. And this being the heyday of conglomerates, they aren't too fussy about what businesses they buy. They swallow a cassette tape manufacturer, a pet supplies business, and even a circus. They open a film studio and hatch plans to build a theme park. And as Christmas 1970 approaches, Mattel's poised for another record year. It launches a range of motorized Hot Wheels cars called Sizzlers that everyone reckons are going to be huge. Retailers place huge orders and toy industry analysts predict a Sizzlers-fueled Christmas bonanza. But what none of them know is that inside Mattel, warning lights are flashing. Sales of Sizzlers in stores aren't living up to the company's sky-high expectations. And that's going to start a chain of events that will bring the handler's dream house crashing down like a house of cards. On the next episode, Mattel cooks its books. Hasbro calls in Charlie's Angels to help fight Barbie and video games electrify Toyland. From Wondery, this is episode two of Hasbro versus Mattel for Business Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. And to listen to episodes one week early, join Wondery Plus. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. Supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. And tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said at the time. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they are based on historical research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Kate Young is our associate producer. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily, the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out, join us on Rich and Daily, because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music, or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story.